Alright everybody, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, uh, the first gospel. Uh, Matthew was a book written by a Jew, primarily for Jews, and um, we have a topic that would be very near and dear to the hearts of Jews, um, namely um, the expression of the law and how we are to conform to God's law. Last week we looked at um, the purpose of the law. We looked at Christ's role when it came to the law. We looked at that he truly has to come to fulfill it, not abolish it. Uh, he has come to not just be an example, but be uh, the chief, um, how to say, fulfiller, chief vehicle, chief um, body in which the law uh, finds its completion, I guess you can say. And so today we dive into that. We dive into the law. And I said at the beginning of our meeting that we begin a mini-series of sorts. We begin a, we begin a mini-series, much how like we started off this series on the Sermon on the Mount with a mini-series on the Beatitudes. Here we begin a little mini-series on relationships. And before you go, woo, relationships, sorry, not that specific kind uh, but more so just the common kind, the one that you have with the person sitting next to you, the one that you have with your neighbor, the one that you have with your employer, the one that you have with your friend, with your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, those kinds of relationships. And of course, uh, your relationship with God. And so uh, we begin a little four or five part, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, relationship uh, series where Jesus expounds the law and he expounds specifically how the law, the law uh, affects and touches our relationships with other people. And so here we go, relationships, part one. This one is called your brother and your anger. Your brother and your anger. And so uh, from now until probably maybe March-ish, it'll be something... Your brother and your something. Your brother, next, will be, next week will be your brother and your lust. And then we'll go from there. But for tonight, uh, we'll be looking at your brother and your anger. So take a look at your brother. If you got one in the room, take a look at him. I know some of you do. Uh, maybe some, someone's, uh, they're in the, they're another, they're, they are in another room. Uh, some of you are single children, and that's okay. Um, but... I want to reinforce this term brother to you that when we speak of our brother, your brother, when Jesus speaks of your brother, he is speaking to your brother or your sister in Christ, your brother or your sister in Christ. And he wants to kind of use that relationship as a, a capstone of sorts of all relationships, whether they are a Christian or a non-Christian, but it should be most evident in your fellow Christian, in your fellow brother or sister. And so 
The text we're looking at is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And follow along with me as I read God's word. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to term quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, amen, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Thus reads God's very living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword word. You and I, you and I have an anger problem. More often than not, you and I have this self-righteous indignation that wells up inside of us. Uh, that We then move to express our selfishness, our self-righteousness onto other people. Uh, when others do not meet our expectations as petty and as Selfish as these expectations can be, we become angry. We yell. We become passive-aggressive. We become aggressive-aggressive. We sneer. We belittle. We make fun of. We express our anger so that the person we are angry with can feel it. When Yahweh... Spared the city of Nineveh, a city full of evil, vile Assyrian people that captured and tortured the Israelites. The prophet Jonah was very angry. But what did God ask him? Do you have the right to be angry? Or do you do well to be angry? Every time you feel anger well up inside you, ask yourself, do I have the right to be angry? Do I have the right to feel this way towards my brother or my sister? Am I justified in feeling this way because I perceived that my brother has wronged me? Is forgiveness then completely out of the picture? Is reconciliation something that cannot possibly happen? And does peacemaking sound absurd? Every time we submit ourselves, we give in to ourselves and our anger, all these questions we answer with a resounding yes and yes. In anger, there is no room for forgiveness. In anger, reconciliation is the last thing on our minds. In anger, peacemaking then comes off as weak. In anger, 
we murder our brother. I want to, I want you to wrap your arms around the severity and the seriousness of this issue we're looking at tonight. Anger in our day and age is a, what Jerry Bridges calls, a respectable sin. Meaning people write it off. They sweep it under the rug. Uh, When you see your brother angry at somebody, the natural response is what? To avoid them. To not mess with them. Let them cool off. Uh, We don't want to interact with them when they are angry, lest we too feel their anger. And when someone is angry with us, it is far easier to grow angry in response. Rather than approaching our brother with humility and grace, seeking reconciliation and peace. Uh, For the next couple of weeks, Jesus will unpack for us common misconceptions and misinterpretations even of God's law. Uh, God's law, as we studied already, is holy, righteous, and good. It is the um, perfect standard for living in God's created world. The law is commonly summarized in Ten Commandments. It is within these Ten Commandments we will be in for the next month. More specifically, uh, we start with not the First Commandment, but the Sixth Commandment. Uh, Thou shall not murder. Or literally in the original Hebrew, lo rashtak, or no Murder. No murder. That's what the law says. No murder. Jesus, I think, purposefully skips the first five commandments dealing with one's relationship with God and one's relationship with his parents. I believe he does. he's doing this uh, deliberately. What Jesus is concerned with in the Sermon on the Mount is he is concerned with the kingdom citizens, the Christians' presence in the world. Uh, Therefore, the Christians' relationships with other people play a massive role, a huge role in his or her presence. Uh, If the Christian has have terrible relationships with people, what kind of testimony, what kind of presence would that Christian have? Pretty poor, pretty poor. Uh, Furthermore, Jesus needs to clarify the law and its uh, essential components. Uh, The Pharisees have, for lack of better terms, hijacked the law uh, by modifying and adding more laws that lose the true essence, the true purpose of God's intention in giving that law. Therefore, you will read again and again for the rest of this chapter. Every time Jesus clarifies a law, he will say, You have heard that it was said to those of old, or you have heard that it was said to the ancient ones. You have heard that it was said. This can both refer to the actual law itself, sure, that as God has given to Moses and the people of Israel, or that slight modification, that that change, that um, revision, of the law from the Pharisees. Either way, I want you to pay careful attention of and try to discern for yourself what is actually God's law. Is this what Jesus is clarifying God's law? And what is a Pharisaical 
modification of it? Or is this a change? Is this God's law or is this a change? So here we are at the sixth commandment. Uh, Before diving into our text uh, each week, I want to ask ourselves, why is this commandment given? What is so heinous, so vile, and so evil about the action that God has prohibited in this law? In our case, for this week, what is so wrong with murder? Why is murder, even in our culture, so universally accepted by everyone to be wrong? Abortionists think so. Even abortionists think that murder is wrong. There are many reasons one can give to answer this question. Um, it harms society. It prevents human flourishing. It, cause, it causes other people to feel unsafe. Would you like to live next to a mass murderer? No. Um, there are many reasons one can give uh, from a utilitarian perspective. Uh, but the chief reason that scripture gives is purely and simply that man is made in God's image. Man is valued by God and ascribed by God as the pinnacle of creation. So therefore, every person, large or small, healthy or sick, smart or dumb, beautiful or ugly, young or old, hold inherent God-given value in their personhood. Something that is ascribed not by society, not by me or you, but from God himself. They're image bearers of God. When you look at a person, you see the character of God behind him or her, no matter how marred, how veiled that image may be by sin. Therefore, what I want to emphasize to you this evening is when you are angry towards your brother, when your hatred burns for him, even in the most seemingly mundane kind of a way, what you are communicating, not only to yourself, but to your brother and ultimately to God, is that you do not value the image of God in your brother in the same way God does. That is where this sin lies. Jesus is clearing up any notion that you can go on sinning in your hearts, even when there externally is no action. And so our text today, you have you probably have gifts by now, is broken up to three parts, two verses each. Uh, verses 21 and 22 is a clarification of the law. A clarification of the law. And from here on out, until we're done with these this mini relationship series, the structure will be similar. There will be a clarification of the law. Then there will be a better expression of righteousness. A better expression of righteousness. We'll see that in verses 23 and 24. And lastly, there's some sort of call to action or warning in our case A warning for sin. A warning for sin. Verses 25 and 26. A clarification of the law. A better expression of righteousness. And a warning for sin. So let's look at verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said to those of old. This is a reference most likely to the Israelites when they sojourned through the wilderness before entering the promised land in Canaan. Before that, in the beginning half of their journey, they arrive at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, a historic mountain in which Moses has met with God before when he saw this burning bush that was burning, yet it was not consumed. And so has other patriarchs. The Lord meets with Israel here, and Moses goes up to represent the people before God. God gives Moses the first ten laws. Uh, These laws embody the spirit of the rest of the law that will be given to the people. As you read the Ten Commandments, you can sense the spirit of the entire law. The first four laws deals with one's love for God. And the other six deals with one's love for neighbor. The sixth commandment, as we mentioned before, is unique. It is the first of the latter five, which merely states the negative no and the corresponding verb. In our case, murder. No murder. Jesus then begins his exposition or his unpacking of the law here. Why here? Why not with the fifth commandment to honor family? Isn't that about relationships too? The Pharisees twisted that commandment as well. They made up excuses for not caring for their elderly parents and honoring their parents by saying that we must honor the Lord. What we've been given, our sacrifices are given to the Lord, so he can't help you. The Pharisees twisted the fifth commandment as well. Jesus starts here, I think, deliberately. Uh, Murder is probably the most heinous sin on the entire list by society's standards. It was same true back then, and it's probably the same today. Uh, And you have adultery probably following it uh, right on its heels. It is easy. It is very easy for anyone to say, I have not murdered, I'm fine. I've kept the law, and I'm okay. But that is, a, that is very lackadaisical. It's a very presumptuous spirit. Jesus is seeking to address that here. He goes after those laws that we think we have kept pretty well. Because they're so extreme for the majority of us. When was the last time you have mourned for your sin over breaking the sixth commandment of thou shalt not murder? Instantly you think, I have not murdered anybody. And that is exactly the point that Jesus is starting with here. However, Jesus goes a step further. And he quotes something that is not found in scripture, not found in the first five books. He says, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Uh, This is not found in the Torah, not found in the first five books, but is used in the Jewish judicial judicial system that was developed afterwards. um, Where a serious crime such as murder would make someone liable uh, to appear in judgment before a court of 23 members. And here is where the spirit of the Pharisees arise from. We all have 
loopholes that we like to use. The Pharisees had many. And so here's where all the loopholes come into play. That spirit is, if I have not murdered, then I shall not be liable to judgment before these 23 people. Then I can go on living how I want. Therefore, in verse 22, Jesus is saying that anyone, everyone, he says everyone, every person that's ever lived, implying everyone has been angry with their brother, is liable to this kind of judgment. He further explains that if you insult your brother, if your uncontained anger becomes harmful speech, slips out, you are liable to this council of 23 members. And finally, if you, he goes even a bit more specific, in your insult, you call your brother a, a raka, a fool, you are liable to the desolate, ashy fires of Gehenna or hell. All of this stemming from a heart of anger. There's no loopholes for one's anger. Anger is the heart intention behind murder. Murder is the final form of anger, absolutely. But anger has been there every step of the way. Growing, festering, until the volcano of the heart explodes into physical malice. This is the first of many laws as it pertains to your heart Jesus is getting at. What he cares about at the end of the day is how is your heart? Where is your heart? Is it soft and malleable? Is it tender and humble? Or is it callous? Is it bitter? Is it apathetic? Does it care little for what Jesus cares about? What is your heart like when you read a law like this? Thou shalt not murder. Do you automatically give yourself a pass just because you've never murdered anyone? Or currently, you're not angry. I'm not angry. So you don't, you don't feel convicted. I hope you called to mind all of those times, those many, many times when you have been angry. Even for you guys in high school and, and, and younger, in your young life, how many times you have been angry. Recall those times when you're angry at your siblings. You're angry with your parents. You snapped back at them. You rebelled against their orders because they didn't align with your choices. Think of those times when you were trite, when you were short with your friends because they just didn't get it. And think of those times when you were angry with God. When you questioned God's goodness. When you thought that he didn't care. He wasn't near. That he didn't have your best interest in mind because of your life circumstances and you blamed him for it. I, I mean, I certainly have. I've done that many times. So understand Jesus' point here. He is seeking to clarify. He is seeking to remove the delusions of self-righteous goodness in your minds whenever you think that you do well in this area. Because to be frank, you do not. We all fail quite miserably when it comes to anger. And for Jesus, that is no different than murder. But, but, Jesus shows us a better way. 
better way to live under this law. A better expression of righteousness. Verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is one of, if not the most beautiful things in Christ's ministry, of Christ's ministry. Christ is like that older brother who has things figured out way before we did. His life, his ministry, all of it showing us, his people, there is a better way to live. There is a better way to do things. Uh, There is a better attitude to have in any given situation. And there is a better expression of righteousness. Not one self-righteousness, but one of genuine, true, God-centered righteousness. In this case, Christ is that expert lawyer. He has figured out the best practice to this law, as we have already seen. He has understood the intention behind that law. So he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. What is he saying here? Well, first, he's dispelling any kind of pharisaical notion that just because you brought a sacrifice to the altar of God, then your sins are forgiven and you, you can go free. And so your anger will be forgiven too. Then you wouldn't have to confess any sins to your brother because you're off the hook already. God has already forgiven you. Hooray. All right. Anger, not a deal. Uh, the Pharisees and self-righteous people think this way. They think purely on technical terms in which they check themselves with God in the same way people test for COVID-19. If they're negative, they're good. If they have no sin and um, they've made their sacrifices for that sin, they're good. If they, they, they are positive, then they just make the right sacrifices. I just, I did it. All right. I did what's necessary. I quarantined myself for 10 days, whatever that number is. People like that simultaneously misunderstand God's righteousness and His holiness as well as they misunderstand the nature of forgiveness. The nature of God's forgiveness. God's righteousness far exceeds whether or not you are on either His naughty or nice list. It's not about if I'm good with God, I'm good with God, then I'm good. It's about, I care about what God cares about. God cares that I deal with my sin in the right way that he wants me to deal with it. Which is centered in and around the heart. Animal sacrifices then, for example, were an outward expression of an inward reality that pointed someone to the future of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, faith must be based on that ultimate sacrifice, not on the animal sacrifice. But for the Pharisee, they just saw it out. They just saw an animal sacrifice as a get out of jail free card. Furthermore, atonement, uh, the act and principle behind atoning for one's sins for forgiveness, can never come from oneself. Don't think you can willy nilly come to the cross so flippantly and expect that, as Paul says, grace may abound for your sin. That just simply shows that you misunderstand the point. And purpose of forgiveness in the cross. Secondly, Jesus is showing us a better way of living. 
That if we have quarrels and qualms with people we love, our brother, our sister, our mother, our father, we would, we would in love go and address our issues with them. Notice how Jesus prioritizes this ministry of reconciliation over a sacrifice, a gift given to God. He says to leave it. Leave it there. Uh, the sense of this action, the, the ramifications of this action, of what he's saying uh, is lost to us in this day because we don't live in ancient Jewish, in an ancient Jewish sacrificial system of priests and temples and altars and bulls and lambs and goats. But for this to happen is unheard of. To leave your gift at the altar and go? Sacrifices were built into the life and the livelihood of Israel. For Jesus to say, leave your gift, would come off disrespectful to the priest who depended on that sacrifice to live, to eat. It would be disrespectful to the sacrifice because during that time, an unblemished lamb can become blemished and no longer good for sacrifice. And for the Pharisees, even more, heavens forbid, this would be so disrespectful to God because you didn't prioritize God first. Why didn't you sacrifice the sacrifice? Don't you care about God? But Jesus is showing us a better way because God cares about the heart. He cares about the condition of your heart as you are sacrificing to him. We read again and again in the Old Testament prophecies how God cared a big whoop for burnt offerings. But humility of spirit and contriteness of the heart he cared about. It was the heart that he yearned for. A heart that is set on God, his, his righteousness, love for him and neighbor. That's what God loved. That's what God cherishes. So Jesus explains that we are to be reconciled to our brother. Uh, reconciliation is the name of the game here. Reconciliation is what Jesus is all about. We have the ministry of reconciliation, Paul says, between one another because Christ first reconciled us. 2 Corinthians 5. We were the offensive ones. We were the rebellious ones. We were the angry ones. We were the murderous ones who hung the Son of Man on a tree. And yet Christ reconciled us. He purchased our redemption with his blood and by his wounds we are healed. Therefore, the natural response, the Christ-honoring response is to seek reconciliation. Make things right with your brother. Not just purely in lip service. Not just, oh, we're cool. But you're truly cool. You truly do love one another. And each, each one of you knows that is true. Then the worship to God, the gift at the altar becomes a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice to him. Pick up on the priorities Jesus is setting here. Jesus cares more about your heart with God and your brother rather than your external shows of piety. And if you are callous to this, to this ministry of reconciliation, be careful and be warned because God will hold you to this account, whether you reconcile or not. 
This brings us to our last point, a warning for sin. Verse 25 and 26 reads, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus concludes the exposition of this sixth commandment with a warning. And he'll give similar warnings as we study more commandments. But in every case, he expounds, he brings out the consequences for sin. Come to terms quickly. Jesus' point here isn't so much to get yourself off the hook for sin, to do that as fast as possible. We already established that. The attention isn't so much that you would stand before the court of law and you want to be blameless so that you're not going to be thrown in jail with a huge bail, so get it done. Uh, rather, he is emphasizing the attitude that if you do not seek to reconcile with your brother, if you do not make peace, justice will catch up to you. Justice will catch up to you. If you do not demonstrate from a healthy understanding of godly reconciliation, that may be the fact that you have no understanding of reconciliation at all. You do not understand why the gospel is, in fact, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It might just all be head knowledge to you. Your life hasn't changed. You have not given yourself over to Christ. Rather, you have made the gospel a license for your anger. If that is true for you, Jesus is speaking to you. He's speaking to you tonight. He's speaking towards your careless attitude towards reconciling with your brother. He's speaking to your lack of understanding of what it means for Christ to live, breathe, be nailed to the cross for a sinner like you, and be raised from the dead three days later in triumph over your sin. If this is you, I beg of you. I plead for you to be first reconciled to God. Repent for your sin. Repent for your anger. Repent for your presumptuousness over his grace and come to Christ in faith. Because there is no sin that is too great for his grace. Become a reconciler in light of the first reconciler. Submit your anger to God. Confess it. Then confess it to your brother whom you have sinned against. God asked Jonah if he had right to be angry over Nineveh's repentance. And Jonah said yes. That night, a plant grew. It provided shade for Jonah the next day. And the night after that, God caused it to die. And it did. Jonah became angry at that plant too. And God asked Jonah once again if he had the right to be angry, if he did well to be angry. And Jonah again said yes. This is the final illustration that I want to leave with you. God explained to Jonah that Jonah did nothing to cause that plant to grow. And when it died, it should have had nothing to do with Jonah. Or with his anger, for that matter. But he still became angry. 
So these thousands of God-hating Ninevites who didn't know their right from their left when it came to knowing God, why should be God? Why should Jonah be angry when God, the God of mercy, showed compassion upon them? The question should then be turned inwards to ourselves. Why should we, why should you or I be angry at our brother when God, the God of mercy, showed compassion upon our brother through his Savior, Jesus Christ? The answer is we shouldn't. We shouldn't because we are the recipients, the undeserved recipients of said same mercy from the same merciful God. Therefore, we confess our anger. We make peace with our brother. We reconcile with them. And we submit ourselves to a merciful God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, um, if we were to confess every single instance in which we were angry at our brother, we would be here not just for all of tonight, but for all of tomorrow, and so on and so forth. And yet, out of your abundant mercy, there is forgiveness. Out of your abundant grace, there is reconciliation. And so, God, may we be keen and serious on the call to action of this text through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we too be reconcilers with one another. Help us to approach one another humbly, to confess sin, to ask for forgiveness, and to do what it, whatever it takes to make things right. God, help us to be models of your Son, Christ, on the cross, who have went there for our reconciliation with you. We ask and pray in his name. Amen.